1: what which this that or the other from bonnaroo to coachella traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky that's where we come in with high fives for everyone the what podcast with brad barry lord taco dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in brooklyn where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami.
0: Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since
1: 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at whatpodcast.com, work. Also, really good at identifying babies. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decembrists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the Opus a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony that re-examines an iconic album and explores how his legend has evolved. This season, we're journeying into the Jimi Hendrix experience's electric ladyland. I'm your host, Ernest Wilkins. In our prior episode, I got together with music critics Corbin Reif and Dan Hyman to explore Hendrix's mythical impact on pop culture. In this episode, I'm joined by music writer Dan Epstein to discuss Hendrix's production style and the techniques that he
0: used. Hi, my name is Dan Epstein. I'm a music journalist who has written for Rolling Stone, Guitar World, Revolver, and probably about uh, three or four dozen other music publications over the last 25 years.
1: As an added bonus, we'll hear clips from the 50th anniversary reissue of Electric Ladyland, including some rare demos and commentary I can guarantee you'll only hear on the Opus. An accomplished performer, Hendrix let his ambition soar by self-producing his third album. A hodgepodge of jam sessions and extended blues homages could have easily transformed it to a bloated mess. Instead, the ambling attempt to make Earth-space music, being clear that's Hendrix's term, not mine, became iconic. Now, before we get into the real nitty gritty of how the album came together, let's start with a little background on how he even made it to New York City in the first place. It was the winter of 1967, and Jimi Hendrix was looking for a recording studio in New York. Having spent a majority of his last few years in London, and after releasing two successful albums, Hendrix was concerned that he was losing touch with the sound that birthed them. Despite being born and raised in Seattle, a town full of musical talent but hardly the Mississippi Delta, he was a dyed in the wool bluesman when it came to musical instinct and foundation. And after spending so much time across the pond, Hendrix felt he needed to return to his roots. Now, what does a superstar do with no place to create? It's not like he needed to start from scratch. Hendrix already had a case full of tapes he had recorded in London that he was ready to rework. The thing is, New York multi-track studios were hard to come by at the time. Fortunately, Hendrix got pitched a new idea from an interesting source, his producer Gary Kelgren. Kelgren helmed two landmark albums, The Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat, and Frank Zappa's We're Only In It For The Money. He was introduced to Hendrix by legendary producer Tom Wilson. Hendrix dug one of Kellgren's sonic signatures, a psychedelic phasing sound best heard on Eric Burden's anti-war anthem, Sky Pilot. Hendrix and Kellgren would go on to first work together during the summer of 1967 to produce Burning of the Midnight Lamp, a track that ended up on the final Ladyland album. Working with Kellgren felt right to Hendrix, and their sessions together were very productive. Kellgren told Hendrix, if we can't find a studio, let's build one. The idea worked for Hendrix as his creative process didn't mesh well with the typical recording studio setup. Hendrix was out in the streets. Jamming in the type of sessions that are a wet dream for rock nerds like you and me. Hendrix wanted a studio experience that could mimic the smoky uncertainty of a nightclub. With his new marching orders, Kelgren got to work. The new studio's name: the Record Plant. The first experienced recording session at the record plant took place on April 18, 1968. Kelgen was behind the board, and Al Cooper sat in on keyboards and guitar on the song Long Hot Summer Night. Hendrix loved the new studio, mostly because he didn't have to be restrained by silly things like rules. Hendrix was finally in charge. He could do as many takes as he wanted, and his need for perfection quickly became too much to handle for one engineer. To manage the workload, Kelgren hired Hendrix's former U.K. engineer, Eddie Kramer. Things only escalated from there.
0: During the making of Electric Ladyland, Jimmy would often kind of blow off steam by going over to, to uh, Steve Paul's scene, which was a nightclub just around the corner from the record plant where he was working in New York. And the scene was the place for musicians who were passing through town to go and jam. It was not uncommon to see, like, a British band play earlier in the evening at the Fillmore East, and then they would uh, show up at the scene later on at night and jam into the wee hours and what Jimmy would often do is he'd go over to the scene, often get up on stage to uh, blow through some uh, changes with you know whoever was up there. And oftentimes, he would bring the party back to the record plant when the scene shut down. And Voodoo Child with an E, not the Voodoo Child with a D, that jam was really both inspired by these after-hours jams at the scene and also featured a couple of guys who were passing through town, Steve Winwood from Traffic and Jack Cassidy from the Jefferson Airplane
1: the voodoo child session in early may of 1968 is a great example of hendrix's new recording style imagine if you wheel it's like 6 a.m you've been out partying all night and you find yourself in the studio at the record plant Ooh, the real life rock fantasy camp is standing in a circle around hendrix and just letting it rip Good news. Your party chatter makes a final mix. As Hendrix says in the Electric Ladyland liner notes, we wanted to jam somewhere. So we just went to the studio and we brought our friends along.
0: During the making of Electric Ladyland, you really see that Jimmy had two primary impulses come to the surface and kind of get in each other's way. One of those things is that he was a completely driven perfectionist, and he was rarely satisfied with a take or a part, in part because he often heard things in his head that he had difficulty replicating on tape. On the other hand, Jimmy was also a pretty social creature, and especially where music was concerned, he loved to jam. He loved to have other musicians in to kind of mess around with and swap ideas with. And he also liked to uh, play for, you know, an audience in the control room. So especially while he was at the record plant in New York, the sessions would go on till all hours, sometimes because Jimmy was after a certain sound or a certain part and couldn't get it. And sometimes just because he was getting high with his friends and having fun and uh, showing off for the groupies and things like that. Eventually, all of this kind of got the better of Chaz Chandler, who was his manager and co-producer. Chaz had come up as the bass player of The Animals, and The Animals recorded their number one hit, House of the Rising Sun, in exactly one take. So Chaz is definitely more of a hit-it-and-quit-it guy than Jimmy was. Things really came to a head during the making of Electric Ladyland, and eventually Chaz had just had it up to his ear with the all-night jamming, and the control room filled with 30 people, and the drugs, and just walked away. While the rest of the
1: album came together, Hendrix felt he needed to pour more fuel on his fire. He spent the rest of the summer of 1968 working on the second-to-last track on the album, his now-iconic cover Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower.
0: As we know, Jimmy was a huge, huge Dylan fan, carrying around Dylan's lyrics in his notebook, covered a number of uh, Dylan tunes during his short career, including like Rolling Stone and Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window. But uh, All Along the Watchtower is really kind of like the culmination of his Dylan fanboyness where he took this song that was uh, from Dylan's John Wesley Harding album, but, you know, it hadn't been released as a single. It wasn't like a standout track from that album in a lot of people's eyes. But Jimmy saw something in it that nobody else did, including Dylan, and really completely reworked it into not just this epic rock song, but also this incredible example of... Jimmy's talent for guitar orchestration. I mean, there are several different solos, each with completely different tones, completely different approach. You know, Dylan, not a man known for his uh, effusive praise for uh, people who have covered his songs, but uh, even he couldn't deny that uh, Jimmy had done a masterful job with All Along the Watchtower. He told uh, the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel in 1995 that Jimmy had gone inside the song and found things that Dylan didn't even know were there. And that, in fact, after listening to Jimmy's version, the version of All Along the Watchtower that Dylan would play live actually was much closer to Jimmy's arrangement than it was to the John Wesley Harding version. This is the part in the show
1: where I implore you to check out the first season of The Opus for way, way, way more Bob Dylan fun. Hendrix's cover of All Along the Watchtower was ambitious, with a naked aim towards hitting the charts. Originally recorded in England, Watchtower was reworked countless times at record plant throughout the summer of 1968, with Hendrix trying out numerous sidemen and laying down multiple versions of the iconic guitar solo. While Watchtower had the benefit of being previously recorded, the rest of the album came together with a little bit of extra creativity. See, Hendrix's directorial debut... No, seriously, check the Ladyland liner notes, it actually says, produced and directed by Jimi Hendrix was a showcase of some of Jimmy's nifty tips and tricks. In the new documentary, At Last, The Beginning, the making of Electric Ladyland, which is included in the new 50th anniversary box set, producer Eddie Kramer shares a little behind-the-scenes magic on how Hendrix made these unique moments happen.
0: This is a combination track with wah-wah guitar and a very strange-sounding instrument. It sounds like a mandolin, but it's not really a mandolin. It's Jimmy playing electric guitar that's been recorded at 7.5 IPS and then played back at 15, otherwise recorded at half speed. So you get this... very strange mandolin effect.
1: Now And when he couldn't make it happen on the guitar, he improvised.
0: When we think of Jimi Hendrix, we think of all kinds of guitar wizardry, new sonic vistas created with guitar, amp, volume, and various effects. What we don't think of is Jimi Hendrix, the kazoo player. But actually, Jimmy can be heard playing kazoo on Crosstown Traffic. It apparently was just kind of like an off-the-cuff thing. They were recording the song and Jimmy just wanted this kind of fuzz tone effect but realized in his head that he could probably get it easier by making a kazoo out of a uh, comb and cellophane than he could uh, by, you know, messing around with a guitar on a fuzz pedal. So if you listen closely, that sort of do 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 that's Jimmy playing a comb. <laughs> that's amazing.
1: Okay, okay, look, we gotta get out of here. The janitors need to clean up this place and and we could all probably use a little rest. We've been out all night. So, in the words of the great Sean Puffy Combs, I'm gonna shut down the studio. Until next time. We're just scratching the surface of the expansive world that is Electric Ladyland. This is part two of a four-part series. We're coming at you weekly, so be sure to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform. If you're looking to listen to the album itself, Electric Ladyland is currently available to stream on Spotify and Apple Music. The new 50th anniversary box set from Sony is out right now, and it features a completely new remaster from the original analog tapes, in addition to three albums worth of unreleased material, from rare demos to alternate versions to an entire live album that finds Hendrix conquering the legendary Hollywood Bowl. And if that's not enough Hendrix for you, head to Consequence of Sound, where you can find several editorials on the guitar maestro. If you want to reach out and share your thoughts on the album and our discussions, please do. We'd love to hear from you. You can find The Opus on Facebook at TheOpusCPN and me on Twitter at ErnestWilkins. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. We'd love to know what you think of the show. So, you know, if you dig what we do. Apple Podcasts is a great way to get the word out, and Podchaser is a platform built for podcast discovery, so you can go even deeper, rating and reviewing not just the series on the whole, but specific episodes. Since our subject shifts so much from episode to episode, that's a great place to share your thoughts as our topics change. I am so, so glad you joined me on this ride. I will see you in episode three. The Opus is written by Ernest Wilkins and recorded in Chicago at Consequence of Sound by Michael Rothman. It's edited and produced by Cat Blackard. Our theme music is by Coach Hop. Find more at coachhop.bandcamp.com. Series artwork is by Stephen Fish. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, everybody.
0: It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ people get qualified
1: we want to hear your top artists to play on the bonnaroo 2024 lineup call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out it's the what podcast thanks